morning we're in a new section in the book of Revelation. We've gone through this, the, the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. This section that we're beginning this morning, chapter 17 through 18, is a very specific section about the judgment of Babylon. So if you look with me in verse 1, it says, And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, and he said, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So this whole section is about, here it's called the, the harlot. In a couple verses we're going to read that the harlot is called Babylon. Six times in the book of Revelation, the, the term Babylon is used. So in chapter 14, 8 is the first indication. Just out of the blue, one of the angels says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city. Then in chapter 16, and it says, Babylon was remembered to give God, God gave her wrath. Here we have a passage, and then in chapter 18, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Three times in chapter 18, it speaks of the fall of Babylon. So before we start to read, I want you to, to meet a new, a new person in this, in this story. We've met the dragon. We know that the dragon is Satan. And we know that Satan is the chief opponent of God. And we know that Satan is making war both against God and against his people. We learn from chapter 13 that he uses the state government, which we call the beast. So Satan has traditionally harnessed the government as the beast to bring pain and suffering and make it difficult to be a Christian. He had a partner that was called the false prophet, and we said that that represents how Satan uses religious deception to corrupt the church. Now we're going to meet a third new party, and that is Babylon. Now, Babylon is actually identified in this chapter down in verse 18, he says, The woman who you saw, which is the, is, is the great city. Okay, so as we read through this passage, you're going to read this phrase. The woman, Babylon, the great city. It's all talking about the same thing. Now, who is this woman, Babylon, the great city? Christians have had different views on this. Futurists have often said that this is the literal city of Babylon, that at some point in the future, Babylon over in Iraq will be built up and it will become the number one city on planet Earth, richest, powerful, much like Rome was in the first century. However, far more believers in the history of the church have felt that Babylon is symbolic. That Babylon, I think the best way I could express Babylon is that you would think of Babylon as similar to what the Bible calls the world. So when, when you think of the world, there are many different ways to think of it. So when God says, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. We're just talking about the people on this planet. But often when the Bible uses the word world, it's in a very negative connotation. So for example, it says in the book of James, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Romans chapter 12 says to Christians, don't be conformed to this world. And then probably the strongest one, written by the Apostle John himself, in 1 John chapter 2, he says, Do not love this world, 
nor the things that are in this world. Because the world is occupied with lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life or possessions. So whatever this world is, it's something that we Christians live in, but we're not supposed to buddy up with it. We're not supposed to be like it. So I want to suggest that the world is a system. It's a way that people think. It's an evil system. So when the Bible says don't be conformed to the world, it doesn't mean, well, if the world wears black pants, we should wear white pants. It's a mindset headed by Satan that excludes and opposes God. Okay, so think of it again. The world is a mindset. It's, it's a system. It's a way that people think and live headed by Satan that leaves God out. Now, it's not the same as the beast. It's not necessarily the government, though there's a relationship. But the entire world is evil. The Bible says we are of God and the whole world, the system of people and the way that they think is in the, in the lap and power of the evil one. So typically when you think of the world, while on the one hand Christians view it as evil, the world itself, the people of the world, view the world as wonderful. The world is where it's at. The world is where the movers and shakers of our economy are. The world is where the pleasures are. When Jesus was told by Satan, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, we need to, we need to think critically about, okay, the prosperous, luxurious pleasures of this world. There's nothing wrong with having fun, but Jesus said this. He goes, what good is it to gain the whole world, right, but lose your soul? So somehow there's this tension in Scripture that says, if you're a Christian, your relationship to the world has to radically change. This world is no longer my home, and this world is not only neutral, this world does not like me. 1 John chapter 4 says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. So as we think about this Babylon, I think what the Lord is showing us here is Babylon represents the universal economic system, the religious system. It's the way people think. And so, in essence, when it's called the great city, remember we said that I don't think Revelation is simply saying, oh, this is only for 2,000 years from now. As the first century church is reading about this world prosperous system that's evil and corrupt and excludes God, in their mind, they clearly thought of Rome, the wealth and riches of Rome. But in essence, wherever there's money, just trace the money. There's all kinds of evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, the Bible says, and, and longing for it, men will plunge themselves into all kinds of ruin and destruction. So let's not limit Sin City to Las Vegas. Sin City is also on Wall Street. Sin City is also in many of our religious systems in this world culture. So as we're reading along, what God is saying here is, I am one day going to destroy this world system. I am going to completely eradicate it. But what we're going to read in this chapter is that for a time, the world and the beast are best buddies. In fact, the beast, which is the state empowered by Satan, is going to give 
the world a piggyback ride. Those two are, are, are closely associated and they both have a common goal, destroy Christians. But in the end, we're going to find out that the state is actually going to turn on the economic and world systems and they're going to destroy it. And there's going to be this totalitarian overtaking of the economy. And it's, it's actually a sort of self-implosion. Now, I know that's a lot for you to take in, but I say all that to go, now as we read this passage, track, okay, the world is this Babylon, this mystery harlot, the economy and the way people think. The beast is the state, the dragon is the devil, and this chapter is going to describe this Babylon. The next chapter is going to describe how God destroys it. Okay, any questions? Good. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes. This is a deep chapter, but we believe that your spirit wants to speak to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So think of yourself a first century Christian. You know that the money is in Rome. The power is in Rome. The influence is in Rome. Everybody's buying and selling and making money through Rome. Rome is the bomb. But Rome is also, even the, the historian Tacticus said, Rome is wicked, it's corrupt, it's full of evil. So as they're reading, their Babylon would be Rome. Couldn't help but cross my mind. What other Babylons are there before the final Babylon? Could America have some of the characteristics of Babylon? You're like, are you kidding? We're a Christian nation. Well, let's just read. Remember, the, 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 the world is in opposition to God. Okay. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. He said, come here and I'm going to show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So at first he's going to portray her as like a beauty queen. She's going to come out and he's going to go, isn't she lovely? And he's going to get taken back by it at first. But remember, this is about her judgment. So he says this about the world system. She sits on many waters, which he's going to come back and say the waters represent all the people of the earth. And, she, and, and he says this world system, the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. So it's important here to see that this is not literal. Oftentimes, fornication, harlots, and immorality was a way of describing spiritual corruption. It was a way of describing when you turn your back on God. And so, in essence, the world is what makes people rich, but at the cost of compromising religiously, economically, and most of all, in defiance or ignorance of God. So in order to get a better perspective of it, look at verse 3. It says, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And that's an interesting question. Why, when, when God is going to show John the world system, does he take him out into the wilderness? Well, throughout history, there's been this tension of Christians trying to separate themselves from the world. And next week, we're going to see that in chapter 18. It's going to say, come out from among the world and be separate. But for now, John is pulled away, and some, some have suggested so that he doesn't get enamored with her beauty. Look at verse 3. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now, remember, we've already been told that the beast 
in chapter 12 is empowered by Satan, and it is the state. And this scarlet beast is full of blasphemous names, blasphemous names, making people idols and, and worshiping men instead of God, having seven heads and ten horns, the same way the beast is described. I don't think we have to take this literal, you know, like each one represents them, just as powerful kingdoms of the world. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. Now notice the opulence. This woman was not living on a low budget. She's extraordinarily wealthy. She was adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So you're like, wow, she's really pretty. What, what's that in her hand? She had in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. There's a verse in Proverbs that talks about the seductive woman, and it says, don't let her capture you with her eyelids. Sometimes men, we can be very stupid, and we can be taken in by the beauty of a woman, when in fact, behind those beautiful eyes could be nothing but a wicked heart. And that's, that's no slam on women, because it's the same thing with guys. But the point is, at first, John's like, she's so beautiful, but ew, she's got this cup of unclean things. Verse 5, and upon her forehead, a name was written. A couple of things to remember. This is a frequent phrase in Revelation, upon the forehead. Remember the seal of God, the mark of the beast. And back then, prostitutes did actually wear a headband with their name on it. So, but this headband, her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So the mother would be the source. So she is the source of much religious corruption. She's the source of, of economic corruption. But notice that she also has a specific goal. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of witnesses. So make sure we note that, that historically this world system is not neutral towards Christianity. The world hates Jesus, and the world hates Christians. And trust me when I tell you, the world has slaughtered millions of Christians. And right now on planet Earth, the world is still slaughtering Christians in numbers that are staggering. So just like the devil, who was warring against the saints, just like the beast, who was warring against the saints. Here the world is warring against the saints and trying to kill them. And so John's response was, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Now I want you to notice the word mystery used in verse 7 and in verse 5. When you read the word mystery in the, in the New Testament, it's usually saying this, whatever I'm about to tell you was not clearly explained in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament made it very clear that there would be, in Daniel chapter 7, there would be a last days empire and leader who would fight against God. In that passage in Daniel 7, it said, and he will overcome and overpower the saints, and then the Son of Man will overpower him. But now John is saying, let me 
give you the mysterious details that were not revealed. I'm going to tell you more about how this world will end and how God will destroy the world. So, he then begins to, this will just, uh, this makes Einstein's theory of relativity look easy. He's going to go off on some numbers that are going to, like, your wait, like, wait, could I read that again? Promise you. Let's read this. So he goes, the beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction and those who dwell on the earth will wonder. So fortunately, this is not the first time that the beast is mentioned. And back in chapter 13, when we said the beast is the government, remember it said the beast will receive a wound, but then he will be brought back to life, and the whole world will be amazed and follow after the beast. So I think this is the same idea. Maybe in the first century for them, it was what was called the Nero myth. When Nero died, the beast Rome almost fell apart, and they had this great myth that Nero would be coming back. He would just like some have suggested, John Kennedy is not really dead. He's, you know, he's being kept frozen somewhere, and he's going to come back. So we said that the revival of the Roman Empire was such a, a staggering thing. Who can, who can resist the beast? And so I think that's all he's indicating here, is that the world will always have the ability to enamor people to turn away from God and follow it. But notice, who are the ones who choose the world over God. It says, those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is and will not come. So the only people who will be deceived by the government are those who are not believers. Jesus made it clear that his people will not be deceived by the beast. He said, I cut those days short so that the elect will not be deceived. But it also throws out to us in any congregation that tension that says, there are many people who say they're Christians, and some of them are willing to sign on with the world. The moment there's a cost to it, they go, oh, I'll, I'll deny Jesus. So it causes us all to go, okay, where do I fit into this? But it gets even more complicated. Verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. Now, when I used to read that, I'm like, duh, Rome, seven hills of Rome. Well, clearly, this is just talking about Rome, right? First century, they're all going, yeah, it's Rome. The government, the beast, it's Rome, right? But Rome doesn't really have mountains. They're really the seven hills of Rome, and they're not really the same thing. So commentators have gone back and forth, and some say, no, he's describing Rome. Others would just say, no, he's just describing government systems. So remember back in Daniel, Daniel gave four beasts, but he said each of these beasts are just world kingdom systems that have opposed God. The hard thing is when we try to identify individually. You ready for this one? Do the math on this one. It's kind of like when someone says, this is my cousin who, um, on my grandfather's side who was married to my stepsister's uncle, and this is my niece's um, twin sister. You're like, wait. So look how he describes these, 
these kings. He says there are seven kings, five has fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. What's the problem there? You got any questions? I mean, that's, that's Dick and Jane. Let's get moving here, okay? I'm not even going to try this except to say this. Historically, it has been a nightmare for Christians to try to identify this. For example, some have said, oh, these are seven Roman emperors, right? Others have said, no, these are the seven great world empires. No matter what you do with it, it's incredibly difficult, okay? And, and particularly the emphasis is on this one guy, this one beast, the one that was not and comes back, this one kingdom. And when he says he's really eight and he's one of the seven, there's this way that Hebrews would do things. They would say, there's seven things that God hates, or six things that God hates, seven are abomination. Seven is eight, eight is seven. So rather than try to go, oh, Pastor Tom, can you just go slower? That's Nero, that's Vespasian. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that the government and the world are coming against Christians. They did it in the first century, they're doing it now, and they will do it in the future. And we don't have to limit this book to a seven-year period when we're not going to be here. So right now, we're living in a culture, right, where the world and the state and the governments are having a common purpose. Look at verse 13. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb. Now, here's the irony. In Daniel, it says this beast will wage war and overcome the saints. He will wage war with the saints. Now, in Revelation, John says he's actually waging war with the lamb. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is when you mess with, if Jesus was from Philly, he'd say like this. If you mess with me, you, you mess with my kid, you mess with me. And Jesus isn't from Philly. But the point would be this. Remember when Paul was persecuting Christians? Jesus didn't say, hey, why are you hurting my kids? He said, why are you persecuting me? So in essence, when the devil and the world and the government is coming at Christians, in essence, it's ultimately because they're coming against the Lamb. All right? So here, John says, they wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. However, he has been telling us in this book, and he will continue to tell us in this book, that it will be at great cost to the saints. Okay? So let that sink in. Even though Jesus is going to win, it's going to look like a big loss. Because as Christianity moves forward in history, more and more Christians are probably going to be killed. So the ironic twist is that which looks like Satan and the world and the beast, they win by wiping out Christians. It's actually going to be reversed because God's going to then take those Christians and they're going to come back with the Lord and wipe out Satan and the world. So notice the big picture here is to remember this. These first century Christians are like, Nero, Nero, uh, Vespian, um, or Vespasian, if I don't bow down, if I don't join this emperor cult, um, I'm going to lose my job, 
And if I don't bow down, they might kill me. Because these guys are like, these guys are powerful kings. Imagine living in a totalitarian or, or some sort of a dominant thing. Like, do you think, you know, you, you would stand outside when Castro was around? You'd stand outside with a picket sign, let's vote out Castro. You think, you think people in Russia go around going, um, we don't like Putin. We kind of see what's going over in Hong Kong. That's not going real well, is it? To resist the powerful government of the state. And so we as Christians have to remember this. The reason we will overcome, look at verse 14, is because Jesus is Lord of Lords and King and King of Kings. Amen? Don't lose that. From the beginning of the book, he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And while it might look like he's absent or sleeping on the job, that's what's supposed to get me through it. Come and kill us if you may, but I belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And if you are able to kill me or punish me or hurt me, it's only because of his temporal divine permission. But we belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And notice how his people are described. Now, if you're a Christian, this is how he describes you. He says, those who are with him are the called and chosen. Okay? You've heard me say this a million times, but let me make it a million and one. If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. It's your, if you're a Christian, it's because God called you. And I know that from your perspective, you're like, I chose Christ. I responded to Christ. You did, but it was because he called you. Romans chapter 8 says, everyone he predestines, he calls. And everyone he calls, he justifies. So this is not intended to confuse or confound you. It's intended to comfort you. I am chosen by God. I didn't do anything. I'm dearly loved by God. I was dead in my sins. There's no reason why I should know the Lord other than he set his love on me and he called me to himself. And so those are his children are called. And if you're called and chosen, you're kept. He will hold you fast. Everyone he justifies, he glorifies. So rest in your calling, rest in your security that you belong to Jesus and he has you in his hands and he will never forsake you. However, he also says they're chosen and faithful. Because you might ask the question, well, how do I know if I'm called? The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Put your trust in Christ and then begin to live like a believer. Does that make sense? Anybody can say they're a Christian, but the Bible says the Lord knows those who are his. And the mark of a true Christian is that they're going to start trying to live that way. Not because they want to get to heaven, but because they're going there. So as you analyze your Christian life, if all you've got going for you is you raise your hand at back your Bible club, the Bible says make your calling sure. In other words, live to, unto the Lord, trusting and abiding in him, trying to follow him. Because... Peter says, if you lack these qualities of a faithful Christian, either you forgot that you're saved or maybe you need to make your calling sure. So be comforted if you're a Christian trying to live for the Lord and you're struggling, you're suffering, and there's all kinds of problems about you. God has chosen you and kept you, and the King of kings and Lord of lords has, you, has your back, and he's coming for you, and there's good things in store. Amen? Now, as this closes... Suddenly, we see this weird twist. The world 
and the woman are best friends. I mean, the world who is the woman are best friends with the beast, right? We're all getting along nicely. The devil, the state, and the world are all together, and the economy and the wealth and the opulence is great. But suddenly, out of nowhere, the beast who was giving this woman a piggyback ride throws her to the ground, begins to devour her like a dog, and burns her with fire. Ooh, that doesn't sound fun. So this is apocalyptic literature simply showing this unusual twist. He says in verse 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits. In other words, the world system. These are the people and multitude and nations and tongues. So, so the harlot is the world system over all of the nations. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, right? So these governmental powers and the beast, these will hate the harlot. Wait, what just happened? They love the harlot. They both had a common purpose, kill Christians. But suddenly they turn to hate the harlot. And they will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Wait, what? One of the things that the Bible teaches, remember last week when we said all the nations are going to gather together against Christ? But there's another twist to that, and that is in the Old Testament, it also teaches that while they're in the process of gathering together against Christ, they're going to turn on one another. You can read about this in Daniel 11. So there's going to be, in essence here, the Antichrist, the beast, He's going to suddenly overthrow the economies of the world, all of the religions of the world, and he's going to bring havoc so that God is actually allowing them to self-implode, right? But ultimately, they're still the ones who win out in this self-implosion. The beast, the state, and the nations are still going to try to fight against Christ. So you go, how could people be so stupid that they can, as nations, self-implode. Does that sound strange? How can nations be so stupid that they could self-implode and turn and divide on one another? Huh. Pretty odd, isn't it? Never heard of anything like that. Or, or wait, have I? So, how does that happen? Verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts. Why did the nations turn one another? Because God moved the hearts of the governments and leaders to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast and to the words of God should be fulfilled. So some of you are rocked that our Christian nation is showing more and more degradation and disintegration, and the beliefs of our nation are suddenly looking like they're aligning themselves far more with the world than with what the Bible teaches, and we're devastated by that. And we assume that God somehow would never allow that to happen in America because we are this special nation 
under God in which God promises to preserve and protect us until the end. And I'm going, I don't know where you're getting that from the Bible. So as we watch our nation sort of self-imploding, adopting values that we never thought would happen, beginning to raise the heat on Christians and make it far less comfortable to be a Christian, make it far less simple to say, I want to raise my kids this way, and I'm not signing on to this, and I'm not agreeing with this, and all of a sudden we start losing jobs, and we start getting hated on and ostracized, and we lose some of the benefits that the church has always been afforded, like tax-free status and things like that, Christian schools getting government loans. As we anticipate this, we should pray that God will mercifully preserve our country, but we shouldn't throw up our hands and go, God didn't answer our prayers. Because one of the things that the Bible teaches is that nations can reach a point of no return. And what I'm not suggesting here is that America has reached a point of no return. Because we don't know. But Romans chapter 1 frequently uses this phrase, God gives them over. And so as we watch our nation imploding, we should be praying, God have mercy, bring a revival. There's lots of Christians, and I hope he does. So I love America. I don't want to give up on it, but, but I don't wrap an American flag around my Bible because they're not the same. Because America is part of the world system, just like every other country. So all that being said, I have to see behind the scenes, God is unfolding his purpose because he has put it in their hearts to execute their purpose, which is to give their kingdom to the beast. All the world will come together under one government until the words of God should be fulfilled. God's not up there. I once heard a preacher say this. God wanted to, to give the kingdom to Israel when Jesus came. But the Jews rejected him. So God had already called for a long bomb. Give the kingdom to Israel. But when the Jews rejected him, God had to adapt and throw a screen pass and build the church of Gentiles. And I'm thinking to myself, that's hideous. As though it took God by surprise that the Jews rejected Jesus. History is unfolding exactly according to God's predicted and mysterious plans. Let you in on a little secret. God hasn't told us everything. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to God, but the things which he have revealed belong to us. And that's why people go, oh, I don't want to study Revelation. I have no clue. I'm like, I do. I want to understand how does this relate to where I am at this time? And even though I don't have all the answers... I think there's some broad stroke things that I can take away from this. And so if you're a Christian, what he's done in this chapter is he's described the world. Next week, we're going to see the destruction of the world. So read ahead. But you say, what can I take away from this, Pastor Tom? I was hoping for a brighter forecast. You know, like, <laughs> tell me what good things are in store for me. And I'm like, I would, but that's what the Bible says, tickling your ears. In the last days, the Bible says, men will accumulate teachers after their own desires. In other words, if I came and said, you're great, we're great, the world's great, and we're getting better, and good things are to come, and God wants you to be healthy and wealthy, and here's the secret. 
then the place would flock with people. But the Bible says in the last days we're called to preach the word and many people don't want to hear the word. They, they, they don't want to be reproved and rebuked. They don't want to be taught that this world is evil. And so as we, as we interact with this, I have to interact with this and say, man, I'll be the first one to say living in America, you know what I find one of the hardest things to do? I like living in America. And I'm comfortable. And I have to remind myself, this is not my home. You're a stranger. And the illustration that, that the, the Bible uses is that we're aliens. We're like Abraham. We're like nomadic tent dwellers. So press this home in your heart. Don't nail your tent pegs too deep in your possessions, in your values, in your goals and dreams for life, that beautiful home on the hill, and all your kids in this prosperous job, because that's not what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, washed and freely forgiven, and in response to that, to be transformed by the gospel's power and to begin to live for him, to get baptized, and then to commit yourself to a community and become part of a Christian family and to love it out with them. Did you ever notice that you can't choose your family? Do any of you, don't raise your hand, have an annoying person in your family? Don't dare elbow someone, but let's say this. Do any of you have an annoying person in your family? Is it possible that there are annoying people in the body of Christ? Hard to imagine. Perish the thought that I might be one of them, right? <laughs> so, but we're called into these communities and we need one another more than ever. So we have different opinions on politics, masks, but please, as, as we move forward, may God give us the grace to have a common purpose, to live for Christ, to come into this hospital where we can open up and say, I'm struggling, to disciple and encourage and not give up. And please don't look around thinking everybody else has it all together here because they don't. I don't. Nobody does. The gospel is continually transforming us. But last week we had several people make sound decisions for Christ where they get it, and they've made professions, and keep praying. The Spirit of God is moving in our midst, and you have this opportunity to share with others. So God be with you. Let's close in prayer and look forward to what God has in the future. Thank you for your word, O oh Lord. May you speak to us and encourage us. Thank you that the Lamb is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This world will not win. This government will not win. Jesus Christ will win. But in the meantime, you've called us to be faithful and you've chosen us and you've forgiven us and you love us and you care about us and you watch over us. And as we shared last week, our church is going through a time of healing and we pray that you'll heal and unify us so we can move forward with this great task of advancing the gospel. Thank you for every family that's here, whether they're here the first time or they've been here since the church began. Lord, may you unite our hearts in love and we pray for our country that you will not destroy it, but that you will bring a revival among Christians. But help us to raise our kids carefully in this world. And we look forward to what you're going to do in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.